2: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a great episode. We've got Mr. Jens
1: von Bergman. Three times champ. Three times champ and a data scientist. MountainMath.org is his site. And Jens, as we've said on the program before, is a logical and rational voice in, in the community, especially on Twitter. The crazy thing about Jens is the amount of time he spends kind of delving deep into the data, whether it's about zoning, uh, the history of zoning, vacancy rates, CMHC data. And he's not even, this is like an, a hobby. Yeah, exactly. It's, he's a consultant by trade, but he actually doesn't consult on housing. He's just really, really interested. Right. And, and you know, I learned in
2: Philosophy 101 that objectivity is not neutrality. But if <laughs> I was, if, if I if I did believe that... Jens would be one of the more objective voices in our market. Yeah, you know,
1: what? and good point uh, about the... Philosophy about the new, 101? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, but one thing I will say is Jens has... I remember when Jens was getting attacked from uh, one side or the other about being a industry shill, which I thought was pretty comical. So he gets it from both sides, which At Least prob- shill-like guy, though,
2: oh, possibly guy ever, is, right? Yeah, actually... And Super friendly yeah really soft-spoken
1: soft-spoken guy really nice guy and actually i remember when we had him on before the only question we've ever stumped him with was where would you invest you could tell he'd never thought about investing in real estate in his entire life yeah yeah
2: perhaps that or he or he just didn't want to sway the market
1: yeah, yeah yeah when yeah, when Jens is like uh, Warren Buffett yeah. he's uh, he can manipulate things when yeah, he sure. speaks so uh, yeah anyway it's a great
2: great episode it's a fantastic episode Matt and before we get to that episode I just wanted to say uh, we are in the new podcast studio. We got kicked out of the old podcast studio. We did. Uh, my uh, my very pregnant wife is now uh, staying home some days during the week. That's right, and, and she was uh, definitely
1: we- not keen on uh, on this whole podcast. Thing. No,
2: she's sick of our voices. That's that's a certainty. Yeah, but also she was saying that uh, you know the fact that she hasn't been feeling well that she deserves to occupy the condo and that's a uh, weird. A weird, a weird request. We, yeah. we fought back hard and uh, now we we're doing
1: the podcast at your place. Yeah, we're in my kitchen. It seems like there's a bit of an echo here. It is above ground though and it's sunny and nice. So hey, Larry Beasley will be in my kitchen
2: in a couple days. So there yeah, you go. Just for lunch. Nothing to do with the podcast. <laughs> but speaking of lunch, actually, you had us over for a barbecue the other night. My uh, My last night... On the barbecue sauce that's right uh, so to speak. you're off the sauce I'm off the sauce. I have to be drive ready at any
1: time i right. you you're. Sabrina is now thirty two thirty three weeks yeah you got to be ready
2: starting yeah. to show um <laughs> it's, no I'm just kidding she's she's definitely showing yeah uh, I'm showing as well i've been uh, I've been answering all of her uh food cravings with uh me too. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I heard a
1: word on the street is you hit 200 pounds. Okay,
2: yeah. <laughs> remember, remember, I'm, this I'm, was
1: it was less than six months ago when we had a a contest to be down at 173. I
2: think, and and now I'm a uh, three pound beyond meat burger and a two pound lunch bag. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's gotten it's it has gotten a little bad. I you know what? here's the thing I. I, I'm as fit as the next guy. I love going to the gym. <laughs> Sounds that's, like it. That's not. That's <laughs> not true. None of this is true. We've been really busy. We've actually been really busy with business, but also my wife. Uh, these cravings, right? Yeah, these cravings. Yeah. So like, so, like, she'll be like, "I want like a bag of chips, but I also want like a pickle." And a bowl of ice cream. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And then I just get those three things for myself without the pickle.
1: And this is, I mentioned this to my wife that you'd hit 200 pounds. Okay. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah. Thanks for it sharing It was also that a on. Facebook post. Yeah. You're doing a sponsored, uh, you're doing a, sponsored, a sponsored, sponsored social media <laughs> Facebook post. Facebook post. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but she was saying that's totally normal. And it makes me think, I think that is actually totally normal. Why is that normal?
2: I think I'm at like a BMI of like 30 or no
1: i think it's totally normal that you gain weight during a pregnancy even if you're not pregnant but you're living in the house with a pregnant person because you you don't go out as much yeah you watch more tv i feel like sure yeah yeah you eat more and you you don't work and you eat worse food and you're stressed and everything else so you know don't beat yourself up too much but man remember those goals
2: we should get actually see if Jens can can create a program to follow our uh, <laughs> fluctuations in weight.
1: We just have to enter the data. Yeah, he can yeah. write the code.
2: Yeah. Anyways, Matt, you look bad too. But let's cut to our interview with Jens von Bergman.
1: Enjoy, guys.
2: Okay, so we're here with Jens von Bergman, data analyst and consultant and, of course, creator of mountainmath.ca. How are you doing, Jens? I'm doing great, thanks. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today, Jens. So, Jens, can you maybe start by telling our listeners, a lot of people have heard you on the program before and you're a fan favorite, but can you
3: start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, I moved to Vancouver, what is about nine years ago now, almost nine years ago. Um, I have a PhD in mathematics, and I used to teach and do research. And um, most of the time, my wife and I were at different universities, and uh, which didn't make a lot of sense. But when we had a kid, that really didn't make any sense at all. So we kind of looked around. Um, I decided to retool. Uh, we had a good offer in, in Vancouver. Um, so we decided to move to Vancouver, and I was going to do
1: look for something else to do. Right. And you became a star on the housing question.
3: <laughs> Not really. Well, I started out. I built a company that um, for daycares in Taiwan. to Build a product. It's like a data management type product um, to help with their operations. They have a lot of data requirements from the government and expectations to get from the parents to get data. So um, I did that, and then I got bored, and then I started to get interested in census data. And um, then I built Census Mapper, sort of my response to how inaccessible a lot of the census data um, in Canada is, although it is open in theory, freely available, but it's just a pain to do anything with. Hmm. And then I did more and more data work on various projects. Um, And in Vancouver, housing is just something you can't avoid if you... have a pulse (laughs) yeah Uh, there was that the teardown thing is something that i was really interested from the beginning and i've been on the show on this uh before right right. and um to to talk about this so that's something that i've been doing for quite a while i'm interested in urban issues cycling has been something that i've been interested in for a long time and then i slid into more sort of urban and also
1: housing issues in vancouver it's just a big topic here right so Jens, uh, we want to talk to you about a bunch of things today, but one one thing uh, just to kind of start off with, I know you follow the housing question, but not on a kind of day-to-day, but March was the slowest March since since 1986. W- what are your thoughts on the housing market in general right now, kind of where we're at? Medium to long term, I still
3: see that Vancouver still has supply issues. If I look at sort of the overall picture um, we have an astronomical job vacancy rate, really low unemployment, high participation rate. So if we look at the labor market, things that typically drive um, um, housing demand, um, it's it's very strong. And it doesn't really look like it's going to soften all that much. We've seen a slight dip in the job vacancy rate, uh, well within the margin of error from above just above 5% to just below 5% the recent updates. So what that means is 5% of jobs in the region are vacant and actively looking to get filled. I mean, Toronto sits at three, which is fairly strong. Um, So there's just a huge gap of um, where we just can't find people to come. And um, there are people elsewhere in Canada that would love to come and have a job, but um, they can't. Why can't there? Well, we can say, well, it's not affordable, but we can phrase it differently and also just say, well, there simply aren't enough places for these people to come. Of course, those two are related.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So the job vacancy points to kind of uh, a strong position in Vancouver. Uh, In terms of immigration numbers, we're still seeing kind of, what is it, uh, 40,000 people? how, maybe you can speak to that. Yeah,
3: I, I I would have to check again what the numbers are. But we know federally the targets have been increased. So uh, we're not going to see a, a, a big drop in immigration. So this is happening. Um, at the same time, of course, we have now in Metro Vancouver, we're in a situation where supply is in the pipeline. So we have um, a lot that's under construction that's going to complete um, in the next year or so. Um, so that might need uh, lead to some temporary softening on the supply constraints. And so in the sort of next year or two, we can definitely, you know, stuff could happen that, um, you know, prices can soften. Uh, in the longer outlook, unless we go and, and keep that pace up, I just don't see how we can deal with the
1: supply issues that we face. Right, and, and it strikes me as... Um just a few thoughts on that. One is that I, I don't think we're going to keep that pace, right? It seems like we're we're out of what now was clearly a massive building boom um, that took place, but it seems like the that's that's done. It seems like developers have really pulled back, um, so it doesn't seem like we'll keep pace. Interestingly enough, we had Tom Davidoff on uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about uh, he seemed to be sort of pulling back on the supply question, but you, you, as I understand, you still see supply as as a major issue that we should still be kind of keeping our foot fully on the gas here to to be creating more housing.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are other indicators we can look at. Um, We can look at overcrowding of households. We can look at um, just the sheer amount of um, young adults that live with their parents, right? So over 100,000 adults between the age of 25 to to 40 live with their parents in Metro Vancouver. Um, Some of those by choice. And there's some cultural drivers for that. Um, So it should probably be expected that that's higher than, say, in um, Calgary, Mm -hmm. those rates, but uh, not that much higher. I mean, there's definitely... um, So this is an issue in Toronto, too. And so those are people that um, a good portion of them would probably love to move out. Let's say 40,000 of them well, they would love to move out again if there was something that was affordable that they could find. Well, again, even forgetting about affordability, there simply aren't enough places to go around.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Which, again, ties into affordability. And it also ties into the idea of why um, smaller and one-bedroom units have been in such high demand in the region, right? So one-bedroom rents have risen faster than two or three-bedroom rents in the region, and um, it's definitely something
1: that um, there's a huge demand for that. Right. So, so one question we, we posed to Tom that I think we will pose to you as well is one of our guests kind of famously said, at least in my mind, uh, that uh, you never hear about uh, a rental bubble, right? Like you can always hear, oh, the housing bubble, the housing bubble. You never hear about a rental bubble. But it does seem like rents have softened Uh, at least slightly right now. What are your thoughts on kind of rents in Vancouver uh, and and kind of the future over the next one, three, five years?
3: Right. So um, one thing, sort of a pet peeve I have is um, rents don't really care about municipal boundaries. But the policy that affects, say, rental markets does. And so that um, creates problems. So, City of Vancouver, for example, has been very aggressive in trying to get more rental built, um, but that doesn't really do all that much if Burnaby tears down rental, because in the end, um, what really matters—it's it's a regional market. So, if the city is, uh, is building a lot of rental, what that would do is it probably brings down the uh, it uh, brings up the vacancy rate in Surrey. Right. It's just you know, the way it works. Because in a purpose-built rental building, you're trying to fill it. Um, this is probably the best or the most attractive place to to do it in the city. And so, um, yeah, um, some people will want to live in Surrey, but some people live in Surrey because they can't live in the city of Vancouver. And right. if they can, they'll move. So um, that creates a whole bunch of problems for the city. And um, so if I looking at um, the rental market, Um, it's not completely disconnected from, of course, the ownership market. In the end, a unit is a unit. It's somewhat fungible. right? So we know in the region um, if we build 10 condo units, three of them are going to be rented, six owner-occupied, and one at any given point in time vacant in transition or maybe permanently vacant. And so all of these things help and tie together. But um, security of tenure, um, like purpose-built rental, there's a, a place for that so if i look in terms of how these things develop it's going to be a huge benefit if we can get
1: more of these um throughout the region but but it sounds to me like if i understand correctly the city of vancouver can do you know can be very aggressive with with uh building rental or building just in general more more homes but unless there's kind of a a metro vancouver plan chances are the vacancy rate's always going to be very low in Vancouver and it's actually just helping, uh, affordable housing kind of further, further out. Right. So I
3: I think we can take two points of view on this. So, um, affordability is definitely, um, one important factor that really drives how people feel about housing. Um, the other part is simply, um, just giving more people the opportunity to enjoy the region, to live closer to jobs, to cutting their commutes. Um, There's a reason why rents are higher in the city than there are out in Burnaby or out in Surrey. Um, The reason is that um, people are willing to pay for better amenities and for proximity to jobs um, and those amenities. Another way to think about this, and that's another one of my pet peeves, is we tend to think of transportation and housing as separate. But I think they're not. They're really intimately tied. Wherever you live uh, makes a huge impact on transportation. People that live out in Surrey often spend about equal amounts of money on transportation than they do on housing, if you count also their time, right? Their time value of money. So if we're thinking about it this way and we apply sort of the 30% affordability um, metric, um, does that really work? Because if I live, say, in Mount Pleasant, uh, transit-rich, amenity-rich neighborhood. I can get to downtown or my work fairly easily. I, my transportation budget is going to be much, much smaller than when I live out, say, in, in Surrey. Right. In rural Surrey or in, uh, even in Burnaby. Um, maybe along Skytrain, I can still kind of get there if I live, say, in Metrotown. But um, how do we account for that? And that's something when people make decisions about housing, they definitely account for it. They know how much they spend, how much Absolutely. time and money they spend on those things. Location really matters. But in terms of affordability, the way we talk about it, we don't actually account for that.
2: That's, that's funny because that's one of the number one things that we talk about with buyers that are looking to leave Vancouver, uh, especially if they work in the city of Vancouver or, or you mm-hmm. know Burnaby or more centrally. They, that cost, like what is your monthly cost now in transportation coming back to the city and what's the offset and a lot of the times when you run those numbers people decide to try and stay closer to where they work Surprise and it's also
1: a quality of uh, there's a quality of life component but then you can also say what's your time worth right like if you're three hours four hours a day in in transit and literally sitting in a car wasting time when you could actually be you know yeah no
3: but that's that's essentially the equation you do not everybody can exchange time for money that freely Right, right. So uh, for some people, you you can make that trade off easily, but uh, some people can. So it also it depends on how you value these things. Uh-huh. Um, some people maybe um, some c- manage to structure their commutes in a way that they find them productive. Maybe right. they do all their email on the SkyTrain as they come in, or um, I don't know. Maybe they get their workout on a bike as they um, cycle in. Um, so there, there are ways that people um, experience commutes differently. So it's hard to overly generalize. But these are, I think, important questions right. when we think about how we deliver housing. That matter. Like we shouldn't separate location from, um, say, just the physical from the monetary aspects of affordability. The thirty percent metric.
1: Right. No, and location I, matters. I, I've actually never really considered the just that the the crux of the idea that. Transportation costs need to be more related with housing costs in how you're kind of conceiving of, mm-hmm. of how much people are spending on housing right
3: well my first one of my first maps on census mapper like the first thing that I wanted to do when I built this was a map that I called the hidden mortgage. so what it does is it, it just models um, the transportation costs including time cost and calculates what kind of mortgage like, how much more money could I have gotten um, to sort of serve that as a mortgage debt? Right. So, as so I assume, I had zero transportation costs. Like, I live next door to my um, work. Um, what's the What's the difference? Like, could I get hundred fifty thousand dollars more mortgage? Hundred uh, thousand, two hundred, and it's quite staggering. Yeah, uh,
1: this seems like a really interesting. And it's funny, like Adam kind of said here. Um, we when we're talking to buyers every day or people looking to make a move you're you're talking about these issues but i've never really thought of them the way you're conceptualizing them here does does the federal government uh kind of think of uh, transportation and housing as as interdependent as as you're uh outlining it here not
3: really I don't I've not seen metrics from CMHC or others that do this. so right. Metro Vancouver does have the um, transportation and housing study so they did a, um, they have panel data so where they survey people and survey them over time. Um, the same people follow try to follow the same people over time and they use that um, to compute at the individual level what are their transportation costs, what are the housing costs and relate those. They don't uh, take time into consideration. Right, but um, they take direct transportation costs, so I think that's uh, one approach to try and look at that. But yeah, I think it would be nice to have metrics at sort of the country level that can help us deal with this, just like we have core housing need. Right. right.
1: So Jens, I, you mentioned that you did some data crunching on on foreign buyers here in Vancouver for the province at one point. Can Can you just talk a little bit about your thoughts on foreign buyers? I mean, it's always a hot topic here in Vancouver.
3: Definitely a hot topic and non, non-dying non topic.
1: Yeah, the one that won't go away. Although right. oh, the foreign
3: buyers seem to have gone away. <laughs> so I think in the, in the public discussion, um, we have um, a range of related but different things we like to talk about. So we like to talk about foreign buyers, which is a fairly simple metric because it has a very clear definition that we all understand. It's somebody who is not a permanent resident, or a, a citizen who buys a property, say, in Metro Vancouver. Um, so this could be somebody who um, is here on a work permit or if they're here on a 10-year visa or if they're just not here and live somewhere else, if they're planning to move here or if they just never plan to move here and just want an investment property. So those, um, there's a range of people that would fall into those categories and we track them. So, every time there's a property transaction, you need to give your social insurance number. And if you're a PR or a um, citizen, that has a very different, then that's clearly visible on your social insurance number. And if not, then you have to provide your citizenship data and other information. The numbers of these people, the province started looking at this maybe what, um, 2006. So, that's three years ago. 2016, um, 2016. Yeah. sorry, yeah. yeah. three years ago. And um, in the beginning, they started looking at this for a fairly short period of time, a couple of weeks, and then they looked, wow, that's a lot of people and we're going to put on a foreign buyers tax. And that happened all really fast. And that's when the foreign buyers tax came in and essentially the number of um, people in that category collapsed. So it's hard to get a good estimate of how many there were before the tax was introduced uh, because there was the time period... Um, we really only have a couple of weeks from when we started collecting data, which already influences behavior sometimes, mm-hmm. to announcement of the tax. And so if we're looking at that time period, we get an estimate. What most people do is they include the whole pre-tax period, which also then that that would overestimate that number by quite a bit because it includes the pylon that we had for people trying to um, pull forward sales and beat that deadline right. that happened there. So, um, so that's then. And then the numbers dropped off quite a bit. And we're now at, what, about 3% of sales are in that category, roughly, maybe a little less. I haven't been following along. So the province regularly, every month, publishes these numbers. Like in my mind, if I think about Vancouver housing and what are the real issues, um, I don't think ownership, whether they reside in Vancouver or not, is, a big, is, is really the real issue. The core issue to me is how is property used. Mm-hmm. Like if there's a property that sits here that is used basically it's empty year round um that's that's, that's a problem, a problem yeah. because um that is taken away from you know everybody else who could use this and also it's removing um you know removing from the neighborhood in a sense um sure. so so those those aren't productive. And we have some ways to try to go after them now. The empty homes tax. We have the vacancy and speculation tax. So there is a recognition in government that this is an unproductive use of property. And uh, we should do something about it. If somebody owns a property and they rent it out, um, I don't really care that much if they happen to live abroad or in Canada. Right. So in that sense, I don't think that that's the main issue there. Um, but the key question in the end is how is it used? Is somebody living there
0: or no?
1: Right. Maybe switching gears uh, to the, the reason we, <laughs> we had you had you down, Jens. You wrote a uh, post that got picked up by a bunch of uh, media. It was a, it was a while back now, um, or at least uh, a month or two ago. Planned displacement. How can we ensure that densifying Vancouver won't be taken out on the backs of the most vulnerable? Just really kind of interested in 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 you unpacking this idea of how uh, density can be achieved um, in Vancouver without impacting the most vulnerable.
3: Right. So uh, maybe a bit of a backstory. So Dennis and I, at some point, were getting together and Dennis showed me some stuff that he was kind of trying to to work on or that he he worked on for um, um, understanding. So Um, Many of us believe that Vancouver needs to densify. Mm -hmm. It's just um, really the only rational reaction or response to rising land values. Um, You know, when the land gets more expensive, that means it probably should be um, a higher, more dense use on it. Um, That's the only way to still um, make things more affordable. And the other one was we're a growing region, and we can think about how we want to grow. Do we want to sprawl out? Or do we want to start to you know become or be more compact in the center and have people live closer to jobs, um, and and amenities, or do we have them commute in? So, um, so, Dennis was looking at the frequent transit network and saying, well, you know, as a as a baseline, really, um, ideally, we put people where they don't have to drive. The frequent transit network is sort of a proxy for. Uh, neighborhoods in which we can take transit, but usually that's also that coincides with um, car share, biking facilities, walkability. So it's sort of a catch-all thing. Those those things come together. The frequent transit network. So um, putting people there makes a lot of sense. And for example, in Burnaby, we've seen that at Metro Town, where people said, "Yeah, we should put people where we have this you know, proximity to transit and other amenities." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. The problem, though, in Metrotown, what that meant is that a lot of old apartment buildings got torn down and replaced by condos, and arguably it cost the mayor the election. So, um, Dennis was looking at this and thinking, you know, this is not right. We got to do this differently. Um, so what's the problem with this? Um, the problem is that um, the old apartment buildings, we've had a huge gap in building rental buildings. Um, after, say, the 70s, we stopped doing that. And so these older buildings are uh, probably what we would now consider lower use, just, just not as high and not as dense as, say, a newer building. But they are affordable. Affordable in Vancouver is a function of location, or anywhere, function of location and quality. In this case, it's the quality. Um, those are cheaper not because the landlords are uh, charities and they like to give away the apartment for cheaper; it's just because um, people, you know, aren't willing to pay that much for it. Right. And partially, of course, we have rent control, and people have lived there for a long time. So um, by removing by getting rid of those buildings, those people that um, lived in that building, they won't have a chance anymore to live anywhere in that neighborhood. And I think that's an issue. So as we grow, how much should we take care of people that already live here versus how much do we take care of just enabling more people to live in the region? There's a balance there. And in that case, I think um, it's problematic if we essentially have people that have lived there for a while that can't live in that neighborhood anymore afterwards. So what's a way to avoid this? So we started to think about what are metrics that we could use to um, inform how we should densify. So instead of um, looking on a project-by-project basis where we take a project saying, well, does this overall help or not and litigate this on each project-by-project basis, let's just take a step back and actually introduce this in planning just right from the get-go. So that's where the idea of plant displacement comes from. So what we did is we um, took the frequent transit network and we intersected it with land use data, with census data, to try and tell us where in that frequent transit network do we have a high density of vulnerable people, a low density of vulnerable people, high density of people overall. And you can add all kinds of metrics to that if you wanted to. So uh, vulnerable, uh, we just did a, sort of as a demonstration project, we just said, let's just take renters. The reason for that is if you're a homeowner, you're not really that vulnerable to displacement because, for one, you don't have to sell. Sure. So a lot of homeowners don't understand that if, say, an area gets upzoned, that doesn't mean that their house is going to turn into something else if they don't want to. If they don't want to sell, they don't have to do anything. Right. The neighborhood around them might change. So there's some second-order kind of displacement as the neighborhood around them changes.
1: Think of the car wash on West 2nd, right by Olympic Village there, in between the two uh, high-rises. Anyway. Oh, okay. Uh,
3: no, I mean, there's the that House in Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the famous one. So, um, But in the end, a homeowner doesn't have to sell. And typically, to compel a homeowner to sell in a situation like this, uh, they get more than um, they would in a regular property transaction, sure. right? So in a land assembly, you make, I don't know, you guys know probably better, I would assume maybe 50% more, maybe sometimes even double, depending on what kind of, you know, how big the project is. Right. Because you have to compel those owners to sell. So owners typically get compensated quite handily if they do sell and if they do get displaced. And that you know, gives them the financial means to deal with this displacement quite well. Renters don't have that option. So that's why we took renters as a first approximation. Of course, there are renters that can deal with it better than others. There are other metrics that are important in this. Um, if a, renter, a high-income renter, young, might be quite mobile and might be happy to move, um, others may not. So um, what we try to do here is try to see where within the frequent transit network, if we add density, where don't we displace vulnerable people? Those maybe are, should be the areas we should focus on. So if we look at Metrotown, we see there are a lot of renters in those regions. But on the fringes of Metrotown, actually, there aren't. So um, if you look at the Metrotown catchment for the SkyTrain station, Mm -hmm. so on the frequent transit network, typically we take an 800-meter radius around a SkyTrain station. We took 600 meters around a B line, 400 around a regular transit stop within the frequent transit network. And um, on the fringes, it eats into single-family, but um, these aren't areas that... um, Burnaby chose to put the density, right? They chose to put it where existing, already fairly dense, not quite as dense as the new
1: housing was. So, so one thing that strikes me immediately is uh, it seems like a really smart way to to look at it, but politically much more difficult. No, that you're going after areas of presumably where at least a portion of the neighborhoods are kind of not in my backyard. Uh, type environment as as compared to say renters that uh, you know you would assume have less political sway
3: well I mean if you look talk to the former mayor of Burnaby True. they yeah, might have point. some points on this <laughs> so I think um, it goes both ways right so right. it's it's always hard so change is hard for anyone um, and to change a single family neighborhood like this is hard too mm-hmm. I don't know what's easier yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, well, at least I don't the
1: single-family home folks are going to be compensated that's and, right. and handsomely, one would assume, if, if they took your Right, and, and if we look
3: at the Canby Corridor, I think there it's a process that's been very long, of course, from the SkyTrain being proposed to um, now land use changing or um, and there, we have seen cases where people said, well, the townhouse region ends like just before my block. Why isn't my block included? Yeah. So when people over time, um, they had the time to adjust expectations. Uh, people that moved into the region within those 10 years, they already knew that change was possible coming. So they were already attuned to this. So um, that's definitely possible. Of course, 10 years is a long time. Right. For something like this to occur,
1: and and just so I understand, or or so everyone understands here, the it, it, using Metro Town as an example, it would be sort of the Sky Train, uh, and then the existing kind of rental slash condo stock that exists, and then it's kind of another layer of kind of a mode around the castle that would be densified, right? Is that
3: right? It's not necessarily a mode. I mean, there are different. I mean, it's not. Round in that sense if you look at the map but there are geographic regions on the fringes of it that have low renter density Mm -hmm. there's also we excluded from our um, map land uses that weren't already uh, residential so for example if you look at it there's a big hole in the middle where the mall is Mm -hmm. Um, and of course we've seen development opportunities that take space like this to add density that doesn't displace anyone um, which is great too, but the opportunities of space that doesn't displace anyone, they aren't that plentiful anymore in, in, in the frequent transit network. Mm-hmm. So we have to increasingly start to look. at. It. And the other part is too that we know single family, the way it is right now, it just doesn't work anymore right. for families. So already uh, the share of children in townhouses is higher than it is in duplexes. And the share of children in duplexes per unit is higher than it is in a single-family home, so um, so if we think about families, you know, if we have that many bedrooms, that's typically who we think about. It's not working for those. It, the compromises in terms of cost, and you know, people might want to have that single-family home in Burnaby or in Surrey, or the townhouse in the city of Vancouver. Right. Uh, you know, if these are the trade-offs,
2: is that data? Is that you're pulling that that? Those numbers are coming from the Metro Vancouver area. I take
3: it. Those come from the census, and that's for City of Vancouver city that of I Vancouver. just said okay. the the um, townhouses. Gotcha. So gotcha. Um, those vary, of course, where in the region you are. So um, single family homes still work in some areas of uh, of the city in terms of how people use them. Right. right. I'm
1: often interested in how is housing used. Right. In in terms of just thinking more about this planned displacement, Metro Town seems like. A, a useful place to think about it uh or or Brentwood, certain areas in burnaby mm-hmm. uh along the skytrain lines what about like the west end because that that seems like it it there's it there's no more you know there is no fringe right and and i think the west end is undergoing um kind of a similar process of people being displaced and uh, and the renovations and the the strata windups and all the rest where and there's there's a there's a a lot of people a lot of vulnerable people in the West End does, it, does this apply to areas like the West End
3: um, specifically I mean the, the, if you look at our uh, maps and visuals we produced if you use those metrics like a renter it tells you very clearly you probably shouldn't touch the West End if you think about densifying mm-hmm. um, West End f- faces other issues uh, Marple faces some of those too you have an aging rental stock and you can probably still squeeze some life out of it but um, it, um, from a perspective of operating some of those buildings, some of those lower ones on the West End, it's economically it's hard mm-hmm. to make that work, right? We have also all of the challenges, the way property taxes are assessed to those buildings um, that add to those pressures. And that means we have huge redevelopment pressure and combine that with a West End plan that came into force that maybe at the time people didn't quite anticipate of what it would do. Right. Um, so so those are serious concerns. On top of that, you have probably some of the most desirable location in the region that is used by fairly old, you know, sometimes four or five-story rental buildings. Yeah, there's a huge incentive to either just do a deep renovation on those buildings mm-hmm. Because if you do that, you can charge much higher rents um, or to replace the building with something that's taller. And that leads to a lot of issues that we've seen in the city um, where towers maybe um, try to do these deep renos, where small buildings try to uh, redevelop into something taller. And again, for the people that live there, it often means that they can't continue to live in that neighborhood.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of the writing on the wall. Uh I was in a building right beside uh right at the corner of basically Davy and Denman where there's the rental tower that I think Reliance Properties has purchased. And you know, there's the protest signs in the windows and things like that, but it seems like a intractable problem there. Like it seems like there's displacement almost I, I it's hard to see a way around um I mean, it's that situation. It
3: also builds up in many ways, right? So uh, we have a lot of factors that, um, you know, pressures that um, we put in the system that go toward making rent evictions and demo evictions attractive, right? So we have, I mean, rent control is one. So one thing that I call the moving penalty, which is basically if you live in a rent controlled unit, what is the penalty you have to pay to move? Mm hmm. So a lot of people aren't even, they can't even afford to downsize. Say they live in a two-bedroom, one of those rare two-bedroom apartments, rental apartments. And um, they've lived there, they raised their kids, they lived there for 15 years, say. Kids are out of the house now. uh, They wouldn't mind renting something for a little cheaper um, and rent a one-bedroom, something smaller. But they can't. Because um, because rent control now, the one-bedroom that they would have to move <laughs> to is costs more than the yeah. two-bedroom. So yeah. they, they won't free up that two-bedroom unit for a family. Sometimes right. I think rental buildings probably make a deal within the building where they're saying, hey, I'll give you a lower rent if you move to this one-bedroom. And then they rent out the two-bedroom at market again. Right, and right. everybody wins, right? They're sort of... <laughs> There are ways to do this within a building sometimes, um, but it's hard. Yeah. And in the end, you know, you have one person that pays less rent in a one-bedroom unit that they wanted. You have the building operator that gets more overall money, and you have a family that finally has that two-bedroom rental right. in a secure place. So you got three people happy here, but it's hard. So I'm not saying rent control is a problem. It, it also is important for some people for that stability that they have. Um, you know what the right rate is for the growth. All, they're all difficult questions. Uh-huh. But what it uh-huh. is a big problem is the moving penalty, right? Because it reduces mobility. It um, property is not used in a good way, like somebody not downsizing because they can't afford to. That's a, that's a problem. Yeah. So those on all, all those add up to pressures to get people out of old units.
1: Right. Yeah. Just thinking out loud. One of the things that I've been kind of thinking about. Especially with the slowdown in real estate right now is you know depending on everybody would have a different opinion on how much uh the kind of litany of policy changes have had on the market but it's interesting like the demand side policy on the on the on the resale side on the buy side um and on the rent controls on on the rental side it all kind of hinders mobility in a way that I think is problematic for the larger economy, right? Like, I think people right now are really scared to move in Vancouver because it's a painful process this year. Whether you're selling or if you're in a in a, an apartment where, you know, um, just like you said, like it, it's it's just a real challenging thing to it, move. It makes sense moving if you're
2: if you're in the market. It makes sense moving up, but it it's really hard but, it, to but move it's also down, right? but
1: it's also but they've pumped but the brakes have put on the been put on the market so aggressively or excessively that it's actually hard to sell sell any property right now. So so like I'm talking to people or I've had clients who are like, this is, you know, we're in month three, Uh, you know, maybe this just isn't the right time to move. And you're thinking, well, you want to move for a reason, right? Whether it's for whatever reason, but it's just, it's interesting how all these policies, one of the things that I don't think is being talked about is just how mobility seems to have declined right. in so, the last year.
3: Right, so if you're looking at um, the ownership market, you know I would argue that's probably temporary. Sure. If you're looking at the renter market, those things are baked in for years now, and they stay. Right. Yeah. right? Sort right. of that. It's sort of. A, I would take a different approach to both of those. Um, for ownership too, I'm, I'm sure that one thing that we've seen is because sometimes people have to move, and they probably choose to rent in a new place. Maybe they move for a job to Toronto and they don't sell their place here right now and they rent out their old and rent Mm -hmm. in Toronto because they can't buy right now because they first need to get that equity out of their home. Sure. So that's probably what something do. It probably adds to the secondary rental market, I would assume. Um, I mean, part of that not being able to sell eats into mobility and part of it just um, eats into the share of homes that are owned versus rented. So they're more rented homes out there probably interesting
2: so maybe we'll leave it there but Jens can you stick around for the five wire five quick questions about Vancouver absolutely okay so question number one what is your favorite neighborhood in the city
3: Oh, that's such a hard one. I think I, I flunked that one last time. Yeah, too. Um, like
1: you're, you're a UBC area guy. Well, right? I live
3: up at UBC, and the area where I live, I love it. It's great for kids. It, it's just an amazing. I mean, it's the area is teeming with kids. Um, like having been able to just run around, knock, knock. Like you know, my nine-year-old says, "Hey, I'm gonna check on some friends," and yeah. he just goes yeah. and just knocks on some like doors and so say, "Yeah, I'll be home at seven, and he'll be like, "Okay," and and that's really amazing. Um, and um, I mean, I'm sure that works in other neighborhoods too, but it's great in ours. Um, I love not so much just the neighborhoods, but also the places between. Um, living at UBC and riding my bike a lot, um, whenever I go to places, I just drop down the hill and then go along the seawall, which is just so amazing as a in-between space. Uh-huh. And I'm just in love with these in Vancouver. Um, yeah.
1: That's actually a really kind of interesting way to to put it. Kind of the in between spaces. Favorite bar or restaurant?
3: Oh, um, I just love cooking at home. Okay. Quite frankly, <laughs> wow, that's a first. That's a... I mean, there are restaurants I like. They're they're great places in Vancouver. Um, sort of the ones that I probably say for special occasions. Um, there's a really I uh, really like um, what's it called? Raisu, I think it's on Fourth. If I don't mix it up. There's sort of a couple of these places, a Japanese place um, that I love.
2: Do you, have a, do you have a style of food that you cook
3: most at home? It's sort of a mixture between my wife and myself. I'm probably more on the European side of things. She's more on the Asian side of things in terms of cooking.
2: European-Asian fusion.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, downtown Penthouse or Westside Mansion? Penthouse. That's uh,
3: that's a certainty. Yeah, no, I, I live in a condo now. I just love it. I used to live in a
1: single-family home in Calgary, which yeah. I love too, but I'm not going back. <laughs> it's amazing how many people say that. Uh, and, and I've recently moved to a single-family home, and I think I'm looking <laughs> getting back at a condo after looking at the yard uh, in the start of April. Um, okay, so f- first place you bring someone from out of town. Um, the in-between spaces, really. it's yeah the seawall
0: yeah
2: good answer Uh, and last question Jens um, what is something you've purchased for under $500 recently that has kind of had a big impact on your life
3: Uh,
1: um, are you AirPods
3: AirPods
2: AirPods that's a popular one this is a
1: yeah those have changed my life as well uh are you the type of guy jens presumably you have a speedometer on your bike like are you big on data no you're not you're not big on collecting data <laughs> when it comes on your <laughs> bike. I, I don't have an eye watch <laughs> no but i was thinking how yeah, you know,
2: many steps today <laughs> i was thinking out of anyone you'd be
1: do, doing a deep dive on uh, your your athletic stuff my, no. my personal data no i don't really I care no for idea. it <laughs>
2: that's amazing <laughs> All right Meanwhile, well I don't know anything about the other data yeah. <laughs> but well,
1: i know exactly how many hours i, was I slept say, last night you collect all the sleep. data you just don't know what to do with it <laughs> Yeah, exactly how to analyze it uh, well thanks so much for coming down today yens uh, yeah a couple other times we've made the trek to ubc but it's uh, we appreciate you coming down and uh, that was fascinating so thanks yeah, and, so much and,
2: oh. and enjoy the in between spaces on your way back well, you no go,
3: it'll, it'll be the 99 this time
1: oh, nice. <laughs> and it's and and your your site mountain math can you just say how people can find out more about uh, the kind of continuously interesting stuff you're doing there?
3: Well, what I probably think is more of general interest is the blog, probably, which is doodles.mountainmath.ca, um, where sometimes I goof off, and if I find something that I think uh, people may be interested in,
1: um, I usually put it there. And it and it's worth repeating, follow Jens on Twitter. He's, he's a good guy to follow on Twitter, that's for sure. Thanks. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Jens von Bergman, data scientist, founder of mountainmath.org, consultant, and um, extraordinarily prof- prolific, I should say, on, on Twitter. Prolific, Mac. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> you were trying to say
2: prolific, but you, I do, you, no, you I put just, an F on a, I No, I said prolific. You said prolific? Okay, anyways. Speaking of uh, other th- hats that Jens von Bergman wears is he is almost a five-timer at the Vancouver Real Estate he's Podcast. He's been three or four
1: times. And, he's a contender. And we, we always uh, are grateful for his time. That's that's one thing. But yeah, sure. sure. he's basically like the Alec Baldwin of the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. He
2: might get a jacket soon, this year, potentially, if he comes back two more times. But yeah, he's definitely, he is kind of our Alec Baldwin. He is. And, well. You other know contenders. Uh, Tom Davidoff. He's, yeah. The Steve
1: Martin of the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Right. Dustin Woodhouse. Definitely the. uh, Maybe the Tom Hanks, Dustin Woodhouse. Oh, yeah.
2: Tom Hanks. Yeah, definitely. You're still the Billy Baldwin. Uh that's that's undeniable. And in secret. Uh we haven't figured out what Martin Short. Well, no, Martin, Short Martin Short Secret the Martin Short. All right. A Canadian
1: icon, yeah. Martin Canadian
2: Short. icon for sure. And and um what what else do we have for today? We should say we, we hit a hundred and twenty three. No, no, two hundred. Oh, two hundred and twenty three reviews. That's <laughs> That's, that's. I was even a, better. I was a hundred <laughs> off. I can. I can. I can stop working for the day. That's. A, that's amazing. Two hundred and twenty-three reviews. Is. We've
1: had a solid, solid week with reviews. So we want to thank everybody who's out there listening. We appreciate you listening. We also appreciate you reviewing the show or telling a friend or family member if you find it useful. And shout out to uh, to people who have actually Insta
2: tagged us. What do what you even... In- We're on Instagram. We're big on Instagram. We're here. We're doing it for the gram. <laughs> and uh, if you are interested in following us on Instagram, you can find us at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And I really appreciate... The- what people are doing now is they're sharing a story of our podcast, and they're tagging us in it. And it just, that's the easiest way yeah. to share it with a friend. So if you're, um, if you're Insta famous, get in touch, feel yeah. free to, <laughs> or even if you're not feel free to Insta share us and uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you
1: in advance. But what else do we got for today, Matt? What else do we got? We got Vancouver real estate Podcast.com. That is our website where we have things like the live wire. That's our weekly news feed where we're sending out deals, tips and tricks. We're sending out stats before anyone else. And we're sending out sales ratios, which is not accessible unless you sign up to the live wire. We also got private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still
2: while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. It's basically realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free. It's available to you at
1: VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Sign up for your free account today. Sign up there, or give me a call at any time seven seven eight eight four seven two eight five four or Matt at Podcast dot com, or you can try me at seven seven eight eight six six
2: four five seven four or Adam at Podcast dot com. We also got that secret line info at Podcast dot com. He's actually more of a Rick Moranis than a Martin
1: Short. <laughs> good point. <laughs> Take care, guys. <laughs> All right, have a good week.